This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks very much for joining us on the latest Cafe Connect. So this latest Cafe Connect is entitled The Right to Food. So I'm Chris Crowley. I take care of public engagement with research unit at the University of Aberdeen. And indeed, this podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Um, and the whole point of Cafe Connect is, is that you know we connect you with the latest research and the researchers are actually undertaking the research itself. And you know we'll explore that research and look at the different ways in which it should impact on you know everyday life in in this country so today i am joined by my colleague john mckenzie so john works at the university of aberdeen and in particular john works at the uh, well, the world famous Rowe institute i should actually say not just the Rowe institute but john maybe you'd like to introduce yourself and the, the Rowe institute uh, yeah, I'm uh, John McKenzie and I'm a researcher with the uh, Rowa Institute uh, within the University of Aberdeen. The Rowa Institute is, as Chris says, a world famous school that looks uh, within the life sciences department and it focuses on the links between nutrition and health. Uh, in certain ways, I'm a bit unusual within that group of staff there because most of them come from biological science or nutrition science backgrounds. My background is in uh, sociology. Uh, So I look at the social aspects of uh, food uh, and eating and have been involved with a a number of different projects including understanding eating patterns, food businesses in Scotland, and what I'm going to be talking about today, which is food insecurity uh, in Scotland. Okay, yeah, John, actually, I mean, sorry, that's just, just even before we got on to food insecurity, that's, that's a really interesting point there, that, you know, your background is sociology, that you're really a social scientist, and that that makes you slightly unusual at the route, but that's, I think that's one of the real strengths of both research at the University of Aberdeen, sociology at the University of Aberdeen, and indeed, you know, the, the, the health research that is undertaken at Aberdeen and that you know, it's got this really broad depth and range and you know the fact that it draws in so many different academic disciplines is really only only to the good but yes so as you say the, the, the podcast entitled Right to Food and it's sort of discussing ideas of food insecurity so I suppose a good place to start John is what is a definition of food insecurity? Uh, well, there's been a variety of terms that's been used to refer to uh, the phenomena uh, such as food poverty. But uh, more recently, there has been a, a consensus that the, the term, the better term is food insecurity. And that's certainly the, the term that's been adopted by the Scottish government. And uh, uh, a popular definition that's referred to is provided by Professor Liz Dowler, which it just refers to the inability to consume an uh, adequate quality or sufficient quantity of food that is useful for health in socially acceptable ways, or the worry that you will be unable to do so. Okay, that's that's interesting. I suppose there's a couple of points in there. It's, it's the inability to consume an adequate amount and the, the worry that you you might not be able to do so. So it's it, it's yeah, yeah, it's not just the impact of, of not having enough food, but it's the worry associated with it. It kind of recognises a whole a whole set of worries, fears and relationships that people would have with services and with other people, um, I guess, really. Yeah. Indeed, but also I see there that you you mention the Scottish government 
and of course the Scottish government, I think, are absolutely kind of key to this. Um, um, so really, this 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 piece of research that you've done, John, um, it's it's associated with a recent a Scottish MSP's proposal to to establish a right to food in Scotland. Yeah, I mean it's not connected with that, or it didn't set out as connected that. This is a piece of research that was initially. Uh, funded by the Rural and Environmental Science and Analytical Service Division uh, of the Scottish Government. Sorry for the the, the long drawn out uh, title there, but research. Well, if you if you allow me to say, John, it's 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 a, it's a bit of a mouthful. Oh. Uh, but that started in two thousand and sixteen, and it's part of a a wider strategic uh, program of research. Uh, the the bill by the MSP is is more much more recent than that. It's just that our findings are coming out at uh, much and such the same time as this bill was being consulted on. Uh, so this was a, a a bill proposed by MSP Elaine Smith uh, that explored whether we could establish a a right to food in Scotland. Okay, so the research underpins it. Is it? Is it, it, it... It goes back a little bit further in time, and it's it's uh, Scottish government collecting data on sort of food insecurity yeah. in in the country in a, in a longer term. Yeah. So, what sort of insights do we have into levels of food insecurity in Scotland? Okay. Well, uh, again, prior to this research project, the Scottish government started to include questions about food insecurity in the Scottish Health Survey. And they started doing that in 2017 and carried on in 2018. And like many other uh, uh, research in uh, high-income countries, there's a, you know, the results are shown that there's, ri- there's rising levels of food insecurity uh, within uh, Scotland. Uh, so, yeah, that... Uh, pieces of research does some work towards you know like allowing us to look at patterns and increasing levels but it doesn't really tell us what it's like to be food insecure so that is where our research the research i'm working on comes into it this is a qualitative research uh project in which we've carried out in-depth interviews to explore uh what it's like to be food insecure uh, in people's day-to-day lives so I guess that's trying to get to the kind of the heart of the lived experience, not the statistics. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so how did you go about sort of recruiting people for this? Okay, uh, we did use two methods of recruitment. We really wanted in this study to get beyond food banks, as most uh, research into food insecurity has recruited directly through food banks. And there was evidence to suggest that uh, there's a large number of people who don't use food banks who are food insecure. So our first uh, route of recruitment was through the Scottish Health Survey. So we got a list of people who answered yes to uh, the what, at least one of the three questions they included about food insecurity and who agreed to be contacted to take part in further research. So we recruited through that and managed to recruit 23 participants but that wasn't really enough so we also had to complement that by recruiting through uh, food banks Uh, and we we contacted various food banks 
within Scotland and their staff helped us recruit some of their users. So that was a further 33 people that we got through that uh, way. So what did the interviews themselves explore? Well, it explored, first of all, just the demographic characteristics of the people, so their age, their background, their education level, etc. Uh, but with more regard to food insecurity, it looked at circumstances around their first experience of food insecurity, uh, things that made it worse, things that made it better, uh, the impacts uh, it had on people, uh, the sports that they felt people required to get out of food insecurity and the various coping mechanisms that uh, they drew, drew on. And one aspect of this study that I forgot to mention is it's longitudinal. So we're we're interviewing the same people uh, three times over a year and a half. So uh -huh. every six months we're going back to the same people. Because again, that's something that the statistical data doesn't tell you about how people experience it uh, over time. No, that's a that's a single snapshot, isn't it? And what you're trying to get here is that, that yeah, that longer term experience. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was basically what the the interviews uh, covered. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could tell you a little bit about the key findings. Please do. From those yes. inter interviews is. Uh, one of the interesting findings is that the participants recruited through the uh, the Scottish Health Survey uh, seem to come from a different demographic than those uh, recruited through food banks. So they were more likely to be uh, employed, they were more likely to be uh, homeowners, they were more likely to be younger when recruited through the uh, health survey than through food banks. Although we we have to acknowledge that our sample's too small for us to make any, you know, big claims. But it was just their characteristics were uh, different and tended to experience uh, uh, report experiences of food insecurity that were slightly different. So those who were recruited through the uh, food banks tended to report higher levels of food insecurity uh, than those recruited through. Uh, the Scottish Health Survey. So can I, can I just I mean there there, there may not be a, a readily available answer to this, but those who experience food insecurity but don't use food banks, I mean, is it the case that they would be relying on their families, their immediate support networks? Um, uh, and the answer to that would be some definitely do. So there's like a, uh, quite a number of people recruit uh, participants that we spoke to said that they didn't feel that they uh, feel it necessary to access food banks, that they had other ways. They felt that their food insecurity was borderline. Uh, and some of them just didn't know whether they were entitled to use them or if, where to access them. So there was a variety of reasons. But yeah, those recruited through uh, the Scottish Health Survey tended to have, at times, a, a wider network of family to draw on than those who were recruited through uh, the food banks. And those recruited through food banks, often their family members were in a similar situation. Yeah. So uh, they, they, they couldn't really help. So, yeah. yeah. I, I guess you, you touched there on them, you know, sort of borderline food insecurity. So I suppose that means that there are as with everything in life, different degrees of food insecurity yes. that we're dealing with here. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a standard uh, measures of mild food insecurity, which uh, relates to uh, worrying about running out of food. Moderate food insecurity relates to uh, actually cutting back portions, reducing the quantity and quality of food, and then severe food insecurity, which relates to uh, going without food for a whole day okay. or more. Right, yeah. Uh, and sometimes this can be for a variety of reasons. It's most often to do with money economic, you know, having resort, economic resources to go and buy food. But there were a few participants who couldn't get out to shops because of childcare problems and things like that at short notice. So they would go a whole day without eating because they couldn't access uh, food uh, rather than they uh, physically access rather than they didn't have the economic resources to buy it. But largely it's an economic yeah, uh, I, 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 ultimately, of course, these, these are, are really only words and it's it's hard to understand what that actually means for someone in their life to say severe food insecurity. And now, I, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that this is research that's been ongoing for a number of years, but um, just to sort of throw a bit of a curveball in, as the pandemic has to life as a whole, I mean, I, I guess the experience of, of this under COVID-19 has probably... Uh, it just in your, you know, what, what do you think? Do you think it, it probably has made it worse, I guess? Uh, it's, it's very unusual, Chris. Uh, there's there's two different answers. Okay. But certainly, because I had been interviewing during the lockdown and some were at the beginning initial stages before the full lockdown and some were during the full lockdown and some were once I had lifted a bit, there was various responses and limited response because some people hadn't had experience. But from what I've learned so far, there are some people who says that their food insecurity improved or the level decreased because uh, they were getting food delivered to them uh, okay. by organisations. Uh, but there were those who felt more socially isolated and one of the things that we're beginning to get a hint of from our research is that social isolation seems to intensify feelings of food insecurity. So although people might have physical access to food, they feel more worried and stressed out by the worry that will run out when they're more socially isolated. Yeah. So I'll be, uh, we'll get more about that in the next set of interviews because people will have a longer time to reflect on the effects of of COVID. But it was interesting that some people felt that it was better yeah. and some it people felt it was worse. I, I suppose that's the point, isn't it? It's, it's a complex world, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Things work. The, things never work uniformly for all people. They always work slightly differently in, in different sets of circumstances for different people. And I guess there's a point in there about different circumstances, different people, but different people in different cultures. And there's a whole other range of issues, I guess, that we, we haven't touched here, but, you know, cultural issues around foods. Um, and and uh, does this have an impact on food insecurity or, or how it's dealt with? Yeah. I mean, one of the definitions of food insecurity talks about culturally acceptable food, for example. So if they've got, you know, it could be the case that there could be a bag of insects <laughs> that you could eat would be highly nutritious and good for you. 
But within our culture, we don't by and large eat insects. So we don't define it as food and most people would struggle to eat it regardless of whether they were hungry or not. But this could also be made, uh, you know, it, it could religion could come into it. So some religions define certain things as not food. And yeah, there is a cultural uh, aspects to uh, the food insecurity itself, but also and ways of coping with it. So having, you know, cookery skills and budgeting skills uh, can be a way of negotiating or mitigating the effects of food insecurity, but not everybody has has those skills uh, so readily available. And the other cultural aspect comes in the form of uh, shame and embarrassment about being food insecure and accessing uh, uh, food aid. So there was one chap uh, that I spoke to who took six, six weeks before he could actually bring himself to enter a food bank because he just felt so ashamed. He'd spent all his life as a, you know, a relatively well-off oil worker and then found himself, uh, uh, you know, signing on because of ill health and uh, had to wait 12 weeks before he got any kind of payment. So he was uh, really struggling, but struggled with going into the food bank yeah. itself. No, I mean, you, of course, you allude to universal credit there, and I'm sure at some point we'll come back to that in this, this conversation. But yeah, that those issues of shame and embarrassment, and it's, it's, it's difficult to talk about because, yeah, I, I don't know how I would feel in the same circumstances I imagine I probably would. And this is one of these big tensions in society, isn't it? You know, on the one hand... I feel as well I want to live in a society where, you know, there is a safety net, where we are good and kind to each other and I probably shouldn't have used those words, you know, but you know, but at least where there is provision for people. But by another token, we're told you, know, you need to be self-reliant, you know, that, you know, you're a provider, you do this, that and the other. And yeah, so there's those tensions there and people will feel drawn between them. I mean, it's, it's yeah, again, as I say, for us, these are just words. It's not the, the lived experience, really, mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, you also, you mentioned oil worker there. I mean, again, just throw a curveball into the conversation. We are we are in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen has, is an unusual place. And, you know, oil, gas, the energy sector as a whole actually effectively meant that Aberdeen was relatively untroubled, I think, by the 2008 financial crisis. But, you know, much more recently, with the collapse in price mm. of a barrel of oil a few years ago, um, then, then, you know, really the, the, there was a sea change in... in in um, Aberdeen and its economy and that that really sort of led to something so uh, does your research draw principally in Aberdeen or does it draw more widely in Scotland I think is where oh, it was. no it's from all over Scotland yeah. okay. so yeah. uh, you know the urban rural classification the sixfold we've got some from every category right I mean there is a preponderance in the larger urban areas but we have spoken to people from the Shetlands from Orkney uh, from Oban uh, all all throughout uh, Scotland. Uh, so yeah. No, I mean, of course, there'll be a preponderance from the urban areas. It's simply where the you know uh, people get. Well, I was going to say where the bulk of the population live. It's probably not entirely accurate, but certainly you know a lot of people do live in the urban areas of Scotland. So, I guess moving on from the cultural issues around food insecurity. The the title of this podcast is Right to Food, and this you, you mentioned. Um, the MSP Elaine Smith's um, proposals to the Scottish Government. So what broadly does a right to food mean? Okay. 
Well, when one misconception about this idea of the right to food is that it's not about providing free food for everybody in Scotland. So it's not a it's, sort of super school meal scheme or something? Uh, no, no. It's about uh, establishing a strategic framework of policies aimed at uh, trying to ensure that people do have uh, access to acceptable quantities of uh, healthy food. Uh, they are never really going to be 100% guaranteed because people will have problems at the individual level that means that they still cannot or, or choose not to access that. Uh, so it's about trying to get an in-principle uh, you know, set of policies that will allow people uh, to ch achieve that and also about monitoring how effective these policies are and about uh, changing uh, changing or modifying them so that they are more effective. Okay, so, the, so based on this, I assume that there is a willingness on the part of the Scottish Government to really make this available for every Scottish citizen. Yeah, um, and that could be seen in the Good Food Nation Bill, uh, which, uh, you know, sets out... Uh, uh, that there should be ready access to healthy and nutritious food for all uh, and the National Health Services uh, uh, position statement aiming to eradicate or reduce food insecurity but also in the fact that the Scottish Government included uh, the questions on food insecurity in the Scottish Health Survey and that they have funded this research and held a consultation on the possibility of a right to food. So. Uh, I think the Scottish Government has already demonstrated uh, a willingness and a desire to set up this policy framework. So are there other countries that we're following the example of? Or, uh, not following <coughs> the example of, but are there, is there other countries who have already yeah. explored this? Or? Uh, yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's been some predecessors or similar, similar frameworks put in place in Brazil and in Finland. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that they've done uh, in Brazil, for example, is to try to give people access to land where they can grow some of their own food. Okay. Uh, so it's about, you know, trying to equip people as best as they can uh, to, to access food in a yeah. socially acceptable ways. Okay, fair enough. So, I mean, I guess it's... Again, it's words, isn't it? I mean, how do you actually achieve this? There's going to be an awful lot of barriers, really, to sort of achieving this, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, our studies suggest that there's not one sort of like uh, policy that could be put in place to, you know, establish it. Because, as I said earlier, the those who do not use food banks and those who do seem to experience food insecurity uh, differently. Uh, so there's a wide set of needs. So you, there needs to be provisions for people, the working poor, uh, but also, you know, some establishment of a welfare system that doesn't sanction people and leave them without money. And the, the, the benefits are more quickly accessible. The rollout of the universal credit and the long delay that people experience is uh, has shown that they not only experience food insecurity then, but end up in debts that they can't afford to pay. So it takes a long time for them to uh, 
work out of that. So yeah, there's a lot, a wide array of uh, needs to be met, but there's also like geographic differences. Uh, those in rural areas, uh, uh, particularly the most rural areas often uh, said that the price of food there was so high that it was much more difficult for them to access food uh, and also that they didn't have the same opportunity to shop around in different yeah. places. You know, there's social reforms that are required but also the, there's some individual reforms that may be required or could help achieve that. So teaching people how to budget cook and shop efficiently uh, uh, could be one way of trying to address the issue at the individual level. I guess, you know, you mentioned the individual there and what, what, what we're kind of, I guess, almost addressing here is the, again, the tension in society between the individual and the state and how far should the state intervene in someone's life or interfere in someone's life, albeit in a benevolent way, but some people would view it as interfering, there would be public resistance to this potentially because, you know, they don't want the state interfering in their life or because they view it entirely as this is my responsibility, you know, or the, mm -hmm. the, there is a view in society that, you know, that, that yeah, that food insecurity is, a, is probably a personal problem and should be dealt with at an individual level. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you've seen a similar resistance to the period poverty yeah. thing yeah. that was getting put in place. And there is uh, a certain amount of adjustments that could be made at the individual level and for some individuals more than others. But given the prevalence of food uh, insecurity and its increase in high-income countries, it, it doesn't uh, seem possible that changes in the individual alone could reform uh, or get the food insecurity that, uh, that we're looking for. So I think there is a certain amount of societal reform that would have to uh, be done if this issue uh, issues to be addressed uh, and I think for for Scotland one of the the biggest issues really is that although the Scottish government might have uh, the devolved power to enact the right to food into its laws uh, some uh, achieving these goals might be at odds with some of the UK wide policies such as we've mentioned already, mm. the rollout of universal credit, a lack of uh, support for people on low low incomes, etc. So it's it's a very difficult issue to address and I don't think a hundred percent would ever be completely addressed. But I think social reform could take us to a stage where it's more a public, a, a personal problem rather than a public issue, or certainly work as towards that. I think we have to take heart from the fact that, you know, the, the, the Scottish government is elected. It's a reflection of the Scottish people. It's a reflection of broadly where Scotland wants to be, where it wants to see itself. So if these ideas are there, they're a reflection of what's, you know, percolating in society as a whole anyway, you know. So... John, as as we kind of, I suppose, as we draw towards the end, and fascinating half hour this has been, just a, a you know, really kind of skimming the surface of this. But what what are the next steps then? I guess with the research and with this this. Yeah. Uh, well, we're away uh, very soon. Start the third round of interviews with the same uh, participants, and in this round, we're going to particularly look at the relationship between food insecurity and stress 
because our feeling is that uh, worrying is a is is a, a component that intensifies the feelings of food insecurity. So how it's felt. So there were participants who had limited access to food but didn't really worry about it. <laughs> Strangely enough, but there was yeah. one, others who were almost completely obsessed by it. It was just really their central focus. So we're going to be looking at that in the third round. And alongside that, we're also going to be doing a study of holiday food provisioning programs uh, for uh, families with school-aged children that would be entitled to school meals uh, during the COVID lockdown and see if there is any lessons that can be learned from that that could inform good practice in the future. And really, other than that, it will be a case of writing up papers and doing conferences and just all the usual academic uh, uh, stuff. So, yeah, that's where we are we're at at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, beyond that, John, it's very laudable that you, know, you, you do a lot of public engagement work yourself. And I think, I, I mean, personally, I think that's a you know a great key to this as well as, you know, talking about this in public, getting the debate out there, getting people to sort of think about it, be more aware of it, be more mindful of it, I, I guess, ultimately. And it's good that the research is going forward and it would be great to have you back to talk about, you know, the, the next stage in the research as, as you do it. So what I should actually have said to our, our listeners at the start was normally a cafe... Um, when, we, when we did cafes back back in the days pre-COVID, if, if, if anyone's memory can stretch to, to those days, um, you know, we would normally encourage Q&A at the end of it. And, and this it's, it's no different um, just because we're we're online here. We would really like you, you know, if you have questions for John, please email um, myself at the university. You can get us at peru at abdn.ac.uk. So that's P-E-R-U at abdn.ac.uk you know and i will certainly pass your your questions on to john and i, I know that he'd be delighted to to answer them but um john that's i mean incredibly interesting research um also very sensitive research in its own way i mean and particularly that this going into the next round um i I, I don't envy you framing the questions, you know, how how you sort of approach all this, but that's, as I say, probably a separate conversation for us another day. But thanks very much for your time today. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.